Well, this morning, we come to our final message in the book of 1 Peter. It's, we've been in 1 Peter, I was looking back for, man, almost two years, and uh, we've had some breaks, obviously, over the time, but, but we are finishing, finishing our time here, so if you would please turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, let me read our text, and then we will look at this one final time together. Beginning in verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Savanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. So does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. I've thoroughly enjoyed this study, as I hope you have, and certainly am sad to see it go. But on the same note, it's also very gratifying to finish studying a portion of God's Word and be more equipped as a result of being through it. And as we get into our final text, let me remind you where we have been. The theme that has been woven throughout this book is standing firm through suffering. As we have noted throughout our study, the dispersed people who Peter was writing to were being treated poorly. They were being treated unfairly and even violently as a result of their faith. And the letter indicates that the storm clouds of persecution were beginning to roll in. The recipients of this letter were suffering. And Peter wanted to encourage them to stand firm in the midst of that suffering. He exhorts believers how to live like believers when when life is difficult. And so what he does is he, he grounded us in the truths of our salvation in the first part of the book. And then he called us to submission to authority with Christ as our example in the second part of the book. And now... He is encouraging us to suffer well in this life. In recent weeks, we have been looking at the biblical eldership and how submission to godly, qualified, called elders is a means of protection against the schemes of Satan. Last time, Peter laid out a more extensive blueprint for protection against the evil one for believers to follow. He loves these people whom he is writing to and has come at them from from several different angles to, to encourage them to stand firm and to trust God's eternal purposes in the midst of their suffering. And we have found great encouragement in that as well. Here in these final verses of this letter, Peter desires to bring closure to the theme's which he has expounded upon, and he also desires to bring hope to the people of God. 
And he does this in four ways. And the first way that he does this is by giving believers, number one, final encouragement. Final encouragement. Look at verse 10. He says, And after you have suffered for a while, a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In this verse, we see two points of encouragement regarding suffering. First, we note that suffering is temporary. Suffering is temporary. And you know, if you've been listening at all as we've gone along, that this is not a new theme in this book. In fact, Peter begins his letter with the same hope in verse 6 of chapter 1 where he says, even now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And this is the same language that we see here in verse 10. After you have suffered a little while. This hope that Peter gives here and at the beginning seems to serve as bookends, which bring encouragement to believers in the midst of their suffering. You can See, as Peter has gone throughout this letter, he's touched on several different things, called us to several different ways to live and, and, and live a holy life in light of the suffering of this world. But it's all packaged between the hope that we find in chapter 1 and the hope that we find at the end of this book that suffering is temporary. Peter says... There in verse 10, after you have suffered. That is to say, after you have experienced pain, after you have experienced difficulty at the hands of someone else for a little while. That phrase for a little while refers to a time that is relatively short on a scale of extent. Um, if you're thinking of comparison, you, you think of something that is eternal and you think of suffering, which is like a drop in the bucket. That's the idea that Peter's wanting to communicate here, that this suffering, though it is vast in this life and though it can seem like it's going on forever, is merely temporary. This phrase put together emphasizes the reality that suffering in this life is temporary. It is short-lived, regardless of the type or uh, the extent of the suffering that these believers were affected by or that you and I are affected by. We must embrace the truth that this suffering, whatever it is, it can be a, a whole scope, a whole realm of different options, is temporary. The New Testament is replete with references to this reality. 2 Corinthians 4.17 calls this temporary suffering our light and momentary affliction. I love the way that Paul puts that. Our light and momentary affliction. It's like we're carrying around a feather and it's just for a brief second. And then it's gone. Romans 8.18 tells us that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us. Again, that comparison model, it's like there's a scale. And you have the sufferings of this life on one side... It's there that seems heavy at the time, but then when you reflect upon the glory that is to be and the glory that is to come, it just shoots that 
right into vanishing mist. These believers that were facing the pressure of persecution needed this encouragement desperately to continue to stand firm. You know how it is when you face pressure in this life, whether it's some sort of persecution pressure, which probably not all of us are afflicted by very often, or whether it's just pressure from suffering in general. And you wake up day in and day out with whatever that particular issue is, whether it's a health ailment or whether it's a relationship difficulty, whether it's just the pressures of a job or school, whatever it may be that, that has brought suffering and angst into your life and you wake up another day and you just, you just feel that weight coming in upon you. It's in those moments that you need to realize that that is only temporary. It's not eternal. Yeah, it might last for days, weeks, months, years, but it will eventually come to an end. These believers who were enduring this persecution that was coming their way, this this Roman persecution that was just beginning to extend and the, the, the violent insults they were beginning to receive and even violent attacks and in some cases, certain areas, people were being put to death that they needed to realize that this is only temporary. Same is true for you and I, whether it's persecution of some kind or another type of suffering in this life, we must immerse our souls in the truth that the sufferings of this life are like a mist in the air, here for a moment, then vanishing. And by encouraging believers with this truth, Peter is not, he's not downplaying their suffering in any way. I think sometimes we swing that pendulum too far. We equate sufferings in this life being temporary to just saying, oh, they're not even worthy to be talked about. Or why are you even worried about the suffering you're enduring? (laughs) That's not where we're supposed to go. Suffering in this life is real. Persecution is real. Pain is real. Loss is real. And the encouragement that he is bringing to bear is that though suffering is terrible and it is a result of the curse, it is a result of sin being in the world and us living in this sin-cursed world, that's why suffering exists. He's acknowledging the reality that suffering is terrible. But his point that he is driving home to our hearts is that it is temporary. It's temporary. There's hope that it will soon be over. And this leads us then to the second essential point of encouragement that we must embrace, which is that salvation is eternal. So suffering is temporary, but salvation is eternal. Look at the second part of verse 10. It says, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Sufferings are temporary, but the God of all grace has saved you eternally, believer. It's such a vast contrast. It's such a stark contrast, isn't it? Sufferings are like a mist. Salvation goes on forever. 
It's interesting, the placement of God here in the Greek sentence emphasizes God's premier role in preserving his people. The God of all grace, and then it goes on to list what he does, it is emphasized here. It is God who does this. God is the source and the giver of all grace. He is the God of all grace. Grace in the past assumes grace in the present. That is to say that that plays out in the reality that God saves, his grace saves, his grace sanctifies, and his grace secures the believer. And I want you to notice in this verse three reasons that Peter gives that your salvation is eternally secure. First, salvation is sourced in God's grace. Salvation is sourced in God's grace. The God of all grace, it says. Friends, salvation is all of grace. There's nothing that you do to earn it. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. There's nothing that you do to initiate it. There's not a point that God looked down the corridor of time and looked how good you would be and said, that person deserves my salvation. Salvation was created in God. It is initiated by God. It is granted by God. And we contribute nothing. Even our faith and repentance are gifts from God. You see that in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. That whole phrase is modified by the reality that this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. So even the faith and repentance that we have to have, as the Bible says, that we, that we give towards God, that we have to, in order to have salvation, is a gift. It's granted to us by God. It's according to His grace. All of salvation is sourced in God. And aren't you thankful for that? Because if we had anything to do with our salvation, we would not have it. If we were in any way responsible to somehow keep ourselves in the love of God, we would not be able to do it. Now, yes, we are commanded to keep ourselves in the love of God. Jude says that. And yes, we are commanded to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul tells us that in Philippians. But that, those commands are given to believers who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God who enables us to do that, who empowers us to do that. Without the Holy Spirit residing in you, you don't have the ability to follow those commands. And as he tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God, as he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he also then tells us that it is God who works in and through us to accomplish his good pleasure. God is the one who is using our effort in sanctification as a means to conform us more to the image of Christ. But it is God, the Holy Spirit, who is doing that work. It is God who is preserving us. Jesus tells, that in John, tells us that in John 10, doesn't he? He says that we are secured in his hand and that we're secured in the Father's hand. No one can snatch us out of God's hand. We are eternally secure in Christ. Because salvation is sourced in God's grace from beginning to end. The only 
reason that you will make it to the end. The only reason that you will stand before God. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Is because of God's amazing grace. He is the giver of all grace. And Peter wanted to remind them of that as he closes. Second verse 10 tells us that salvation is guaranteed by God's effectual call. Salvation is guaranteed by God's effectual call. You see that there in the middle of verse 10. It says, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. But when we think about the call of God and salvation, we need to think about it in two ways, and two, has two aspects to it. The first aspect of the call of God is a, is a general call. It's a general call which, which basically entails the offer of the gospel to the world. This is why we go out to the ends of the earth and we share the good news about Jesus Christ and the good news about forgiveness of sins to all people. It is the general call of the gospel because no person can ever come to saving faith without hearing the gospel. Romans 10 tells us that, right? Romans 10 says, how, how can they believe if they've never heard? And it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who give good news. And so you have the general call of the gospel that goes out to every creature. That is to be what we are about as Christians. We are ambassadors for Christ. We go out carrying this message of reconciliation to the world. But there's another aspect of this call, and that's what Peter is referencing here. This is the effectual call of God, which is given to all those chosen before the foundation of the world. This is the irresistible call of God. This is a divine summons by God himself that effectually draws the sinner to the gospel of Jesus Christ through what means? Through the preaching of the gospel. This irresistible call results immediately in the soul being regenerated by the Holy Spirit and conversion taking place as the dead sinner comes to life and repents from their sin and places their faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is a divine summons. This is not able to be resisted. This, this is, again, sourced in the, this amazing grace of God that he would choose some. Unworthy, defiled, wretched, wicked. for himself and then he has from the very beginning been irresistibly calling irresistibly calling people to faith and repentance opening eyes and hearts to the truth that Jesus Christ is the way the truth and the life drawing them to the father through him Jesus says in John 6 that no one comes unless the father draws him no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. 
That is that irresistible call. That is that divine summons. And every one of you who are in Christ have experienced that. At the moment you responded to the gospel in faith and repentance, whenever that was in your life, when you realized who God was, when you realized that you were a wicked, filthy sinner and you needed forgiveness and you needed to be cleansed by Christ and you realized that it was Christ alone who could save you and and you came to him in repentance and faith, it was in that moment that God was effectually calling you to himself, drawing you divinely by his omnipotent power and securing you in himself for all of eternity. It is an irresistible call. And notice in verse 10 that this irresistible call is to eternal glory in Christ. Friends, this call guarantees, without a shadow of doubt, your eternal salvation. Salvation is all of God. And you can bank on this truth because God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so regardless of what happens in this life, if you have been summoned by the divine king to come into fellowship with his son, your salvation is eternally secured. This truth provides motivation in this life to suffer well and to endure whatever persecution comes your way. As I was thinking through this this week, my my mind couldn't help but go to thinking about our dear pastor and his wife. Right, and the suffering that, that Sheila has undergone. You know, she underwent cancer and treatment for that cancer 10 years ago. And, and here it appeared again. And, and it's been more intense and more difficult. And I've had I have several opportunities, I mean, with Tom regularly and to sit down with Tom and just to, just to talk to him about this. And as I walk out of those conversations, just realize that they have learned to suffer well. They suffer well. Thinking through what, you know, they have gone through and, and having Tom articulate how he's had to process this, how he's had to think through this and, and to allow the Holy Spirit to give him a biblical perspective on this has encouraged my my heart tremendously. And they've learned to suffer well because of their confidence in the divine call that brought them to Christ. They look at the sufferings of this life and they say, it's for a little while. It's temporary. This is going away. Even if it results in death, God forbid, it's going away. One day, that effectual call that drew them to the gospel, it's the same call that has secured them in Christ for all of eternity, and it will bring them to the end. It's an example to us. We need to learn how to suffer well and 
And Paul gives us that, or Peter gives us that motivation here at the end as he's drawing this letter to a close to these dear people. He's saying, listen, after you've suffered a while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will then sustain you. And we see that third, that third reason that Peter gives proving our salvation is eternal and that is this that salvation is secured by God himself salvation is secured by God himself you see the emphasis placed on God there in the text he says will himself perfect confirm strengthen and establish you he gives a list of what God will do for suffering believers and this is a tremendously encouraging list. He says, first of all, that God will perfect you. That is to say that God will restore believers. That means that he will ultimately complete the work that he began in them. He didn't just begin a work and leave you to to suffer in this life and then to to go away and to, to be out of his presence. No, he will complete you. He will restore you. He will bring you to the end. He will bring us to glorification. He will make right the sin that has been taken out on you. Now, these believers were suffering the effects of other people sinning against them. And we suffer those effects at times in our lives. Listen, one day, God himself will make that right. will make that right. He will ultimately perfect you by his grace notice second that he will confirm you he will confirm you that is he will cause you to remain inwardly firm and committed to remaining faithful to him throughout your suffering there it is again you know again the commands we are to we are to stand firm. He gives that command. We'll see that in just a second. Stand firm in the face of these commands that we are to obey. But, but look at what he says. He says that God himself will confirm you. He will give you the ability and the power inwardly to be committed to staying faithful to him. Isn't that greatly encouraging? He doesn't give us commands and then just leave us to flounder and wander in our flesh and our own ability. But he says, listen, I'm going to confirm you. Now go do it. That's amazing. He will bolster you up with divine support. That's what that means. Third, it says he will strengthen you. He will impart the strength to you necessary to stand firm. And his strength is perfect, isn't it? Paul says that in response to the suffering that he is facing. Remember that? 2 Corinthians 12, the suffering that he's facing in this life. (laughs) He's got... Probably somebody in that church there who's, uh, who's really bothering Paul. He's got a bit of a nemesis there. I mean, it could be a physical ailment. There's a lot of, a lot of questions, a lot of uh, different responses to what is that thorn in Paul's flesh. I think it's most likely a person in the church who just rubbed Paul the wrong way constantly and was after Paul. And he's facing that, and he asks God three times, Lord, please, please. (laughs) Ministry would be a lot easier if you just get this guy out of here. Remove this thorn from my flesh. God tells him no three times. Nope. And what does he say instead? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. 
Listen, God will provide divine strength to you, believer. It is there. You can faithfully walk through this life, through the suffering, through the pain, through the difficulty, and you can make it through because God provides his divine strength to you. Fourth, he says he will establish you. That is, he will will place you on a firm foundation so that you will not be shaken or deterred from finishing well. In other words, he will hold you fast. He will hold you fast. He's he's got you on the solid foundation, the solid rock who is Christ. He's got you locked in and secured by the truth of the gospel and his divine summons bringing you to that point. He's going to provide that foundation that is suitable for you to remain faithful to him through the difficulties of life. God himself will do these things, says. Friends, you are secure in your eternal salvation. Therefore, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Well, there's a second way that Peter closes this letter and reiterates our eternal hope, and that is through verse 11. Number two, his final exaltation. His final exaltation. God is the one who deserves all the glory for enabling his people to stand firm in the midst of suffering and for bringing them to the end of their suffering. And Peter wants to draw our attention to that one final time in this letter. Look at verse 11. It says, To him, that is the God of all grace, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here God is exalted for his everlasting sovereignty. His sovereignty and his strength is absolute. This is a heartfelt doxological expression of gratitude for God's work on behalf of suffering believers. That is, Peter just says that he is going to confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. He now breaks into this song of praise This one line short song of praise, but this song of praise where he says, to him be the glory, to him be the dominion, to trust in God's sovereign ability to dominate and control this universe is the mindset that believers must have if they are going to carry out the commands to stand firm in the midst of their suffering. Friends, it is never going to be our strength that is going to carry us through. It is never going to be your effort. It is never going to be anything that you do in your flesh that is going to carry you through this life to the end. But it is in God's provision of strength alone. God is able to care for you. God is able to protect you. And God is able to carry you on into eternity. And God will by his infinite sovereign power, dominate his enemies and make all things right. That's why Peter breaks into this song, to him be dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. He knows how it's going to turn out. And he wants to encourage these believers, listen, you you are in the shadow of the wings of the almighty, sovereign, powerful God of the universe. You will make it through. 
Therefore, he is worthy to be worshipped. This leads to a third way that Peter closes this letter, and that is through his final exhortation. His final exhortation. We see this in verse 12. He says, Through Savannah, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In verse 12, he first reiterates how this letter has come to be. Silvanus, it's a Latin name for Silas. Most likely, this is Paul's companion from Acts chapter 16, who Peter notes is faithful, that is, he is reliable and that he is trustworthy. He is noted here as being the one who most likely was both the, the bearer of the letter to the different churches that Peter was writing to, as well as Peter's amanuensis. Now, that is the one who wrote the words that Peter dictated to him. This was very common. Paul had this in some of his letters. And Peter looks like he had Silas or Silvanus here to do that for him. As Peter spoke to him, those inspired words of God that the Lord had given to him, we know from 2 Peter 1, through, through the moving of the Holy Spirit to write God's divine word, and Silas then wrote those words out. And so Peter wants to greet them on behalf of Silas. It is through him that Peter has proclaimed that this is the true grace of God. That is a statement here that summarizes the heart of this letter. That is that God's grace is saving, sustaining, and securing for his people in the midst of their suffering. And he says there that the message of this grace is true. You see that? He says that this is the true grace of God. Peter's aim was to encourage these readers to stand firm in the faith by God's grace. And so he exhorts them and he exhorts you and I one more time there at the end of verse 12, stand firm in it. Stand firm in this grace. Stand firm with perseverance to the end, believer. Hold your ground like a faithful soldier in the midst of battle by relying on the all-sufficient grace of God in Christ. Don't give in to anger or discouragement or retaliation of some kind or, or some sort of worldly coping mechanism as you endure suffering, but rather stand firm in God's amazing, undeserved favor that sustains you and secures you. There are so many paths that we can choose to go down when life is difficult, aren't there? Particularly for these folks, one of the primary temptations would have been anger and retaliation as they were being persecuted in various ways. We see that throughout the letter. And they would be tempted towards that. And they would be tempted to, to disregard the authority that God has established in their lives. And that's why he spends a big section of this letter saying, no, you need to submit to your authorities, submit to the governing authorities. You don't retaliate. You don't get angry. But instead, you stand firm in the grace of God that is going to establish you and carry you through. When we deal with suffering, the same is true for us. We can be overwhelmed with all kinds of temptations when suffering comes. 
And there's so many ways to cope with suffering, isn't there? Our world has so many outlets to deal with with suffering, and and all of them are not good. (laughs) They're not helpful. They're going to lead you down the path of destruction. But when suffering is so awful and so terrible, when your world has been torn apart, when it's been ripped out from underneath you, that temptation's real. <laughs> to find some way, some way to relieve some kind of pressure. Peter says, don't go there. Don't go there in your minds. Don't go there with your attitudes. Don't walk down that path. He says, rather, stand firm in this true grace of God. Well, the last way that Peter closes this letter to believers is through his, his final greetings there in verses 13 and 14. It says, She who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. The first group that Peter sends greetings from is the church in Rome. It says, She who is in Babylon. That's a cryptic way for Peter to communicate that this church greets the saints scattered abroad. Peter was under the threat of persecution there in Rome as well, and so he doesn't want to unnecessarily draw attention to believers from a hostile government who might get their hands on this letter. And Babylon was commonly used by the early church to refer to the Roman Empire. And it becomes abundantly clear in the next phrase that she there is the church in Rome because it says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. Those chosen together with you. This is a common way to refer to the church. Those chosen by God for salvation before the world began by divine election. That's who he's referring to. He's referring to these other believers. Peter also sends his son in the faith Mark's greetings. You might remember this guy. This is John Mark from Acts chapter 12, who actually had abandoned Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. This is just a great picture of the mercy and grace of God. After that abandonment, he obviously got connected with Peter, who then took Mark under his wing and he discipled him to maturity in the faith. And now here he was with Peter, ministering with him at the end of his life. We also know that John Mark eventually became useful to the Apostle Paul at the end of his life as well when he calls for him in 2 Timothy 4, right before his execution. Paul's about to die, and he says, send me Mark, Timothy. He's useful to me. He's useful to me. You know, you have to understand why Peter had such a soft heart towards Mark because not everybody deals with that situation the same way, right? Think about, think about that abandonment. How did, how did Paul deal with that? Well, next time John Mark's name came up to come with him and Barnabas, he said, nope, <laughs> that guy abandoned us. We're not bringing him along, and what did it do? Acts, Acts tells us that 
it caused a sharp disagreement, very strong words, a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas to the extent that they, they parted ways in ministry. And God in his providence did that to take them to different locations. But, but they parted ways in ministry. And that's where Paul got connected with Silas, the guy who probably pinned, actually penned this letter. But Paul, yeah, I mean, you can make the argument he didn't respond super helpfully. But you can also make the argument that, yeah, I get that. He abandoned us. This, 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 is, this is meaningful stuff right here. This is uh, eternal Eternal implications that we are dealing with. And so if you have a guy who's coming, who's to be a part of your ministry, and he flakes out, you could say, yeah, with Paul, okay, he's not coming with us. And you, he, he, he's right in that as well. And so not everybody responded to this situation in the same way. But Peter responded this, responded this a little different way. Why? Well, because, because Peter was Mark. At some point, wasn't he? Peter was this guy. But, but more so than abandoning Paul. Peter had abandoned Christ to his face. There in the garden, there in that area where, where all these people were standing as Christ was being judged by these high priests and by these soldiers... Peter was in the surrounding garden area. And there he denied Christ. But we know that's not the end of the story. We actually talk about Peter probably quite a bit in here, don't we? <laughs> Again, I, I go to Peter a lot because I find so much hope and encouragement in him. But it didn't stop there. I mean, he tried to abandon the faith. He said, let's go fishing. Eh, that's not just him going out with his buddies on the boat and wanting to get away and hang out. Catch some sun, catch some fish. What was Peter saying? I'm out of here. I'm going back to my former life, buddies. You coming with me? Jesus is leaving. He's leaving, and, and I abandoned him anyways. And Jesus restores him. If you love me, Peter, feed my sheep. If you love me, Peter, feed my sheep. If you love me, Peter, feed my lambs. Peter had experienced this, this heartfelt grace and compassion and mercy of God. And so he had a heart for John Mark. Yeah, that was a bad, bad mistake John made early on in the ministry. He was immature in the faith. But here he is with Peter at the end of his life. He's been restored. He's been now useful to Peter. He's useful to Paul. You know, this brings great encouragement to us, doesn't it? First, that God's grace is a forgiving and restoring grace. God really is a God of second chances and third chances. <laughs> that when we blow it, when we sin, when we rebel against our Creator and our Savior as believers, and sometimes we blow it in such a way that we make a big mess with a huge wake, that there is hope in the forgiving and the restoring 
grace of God. As we come back to him, as we've been learning in 1 John, we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And not only that, but we see in Mark that this guy who abandoned the faith, and we see in Peter for that matter, a guy who tried to abandon Christ, that they were forgiven and they were restored and they became useful. So we're encouraged by that. And second, we should be encouraged that we can use our failures that God has restored us from to disciple and encourage others with. We, we talk about the verse often in Romans 8, 28, right? That God, um, for I know that all things will be worked out. I'm, I'm butchering that verse. Usually it just comes right to me. But for I know that all things will work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We, we think about that and we talk about that. That this is God in his providence taking the sinful messes that we make in our lives and then utilizing those sinful messes to then go and minister to other people. Because that's what we see when we see it Peter, and that's what we see when we see Mark. Peter learned from his mess that he made. Peter learned from his sin. And he went and he discipled Mark. And here he is with him and he sends greetings. Finally, he ends by commanding the customary greeting of the day, a kiss of love. We don't share this same custom, and for that I am eternally grateful. Uh, Affection is something that I have to work on. But we do share, we, we, we do, and we should be appropriately affectionate with fellow believers. High emphasis on the word appropriately. Because that affection is a sign of love for one another. That's why he tells them that. Greet one another with a kiss of love. That's what, that's what they did. And it was a sign that believers love one another. They love one another. He says, peace to you all who are in Christ. This final greeting of peace was to all who have been taught the word of God and have come to obey it. Those who are in Christ. Don't miss that. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And so that begs the question, are you in Christ this morning? Are you in Christ this morning? Have you come to terms with the infinite, all-powerful, holy creator God of this universe? Have you seen him for who he is and understand that in light of who he is, you are a wicked sinner that deserves the damnation of hell that will come to all of those who reject God? Then have you come to Christ? As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, all you who are thirsty. You will never thirst again. Come eat of me, I am the bread of life. You will never hunger. Uh, this, this is the one you are coming to. Have you come to Christ? Because if you haven't come to Christ, then you are not in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, you have no peace. 
All you have is enmity between you and a holy God. And that enmity will result in you being eternally separated from this holy God for all of eternity. And so if you are not in Christ, come to Christ. Come to this one who offers this call of salvation to all. Come find him to be the all-satisfying son of God who loved you and gave himself for you, who died the death that you deserve to die after living the life that you were supposed to live and then rising again from the dead to prove who he was. Come to him today. Mark 1.15 says, repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sin, turn from yourself, turn from anything you're holding on to, anything you're believing in to get you eternal life or to get you to heaven. And you turn to Christ. You embrace him as both Savior and Lord, committing your life to him. And he will forgive your sins. And he will put you on the path to heaven. And he will reconcile you with the Father. And you will be one who is in Christ. Come to him today. Believer, stand firm in the grace of God in the midst of the sufferings of this life for his glory and for your good. I think it's fitting to close our time together in this precious letter with these words from Spurgeon which sum up Peter's theme quite well. He said this, he said, Our sorrows are all, like ourselves, mortal. There are no immortal sorrows for immortal souls. They come, but blessed be God, they also go. Like birds of the air, they fly over our heads, but they cannot make their abode in our souls. We suffer today, but we shall rejoice tomorrow. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for our study in this letter. Lord, thank you for the work that you accomplished in my own heart. You're studying this letter week after week. Father, thank you for the impact that it has made on all of us Help us to heed this final exhortation to stand firm in the midst of suffering and to do it by your grace alone, which enables us to be faithful in it. Father, we don't know what's coming. We don't know what's around the corner. We don't know what today holds for us, but we do know that you are a faithful, gracious God. We know that whatever comes is temporary and we know that our salvation in Christ is eternal and so we trust you in that. We thank you for that and we worship you. We ask you to establish us and confirm us, strengthen us, to complete us. Lord, it's in you alone that we will make it to the end. We are so thankful, Father, for the promise that you will hold us fast. In Christ's name I pray, amen.